We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Due It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do Our guests will explain it all to you Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read Oh, oh. Hey, hey, hey It's a Devil in Disguise It's me, Mark and welcome to Talking Joe, the best, in my opinion, and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. If you are new to the show, you can find out all the details about this podcast over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. The agenda for today is to continue our look at the Brandon Jowa era of G.I. Joe Disavowed. With today, Master and Apprentice Series 1, issues 1 to 4, that's the whole series, which came out from Devil's Due, May to August 2004. And just for context, this was coming out at the same time as issues 30 to 34 of the Players and Pawns arc. Now, without further ado... Let me introduce my co-host on this adventure. It is a real American team. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. My young apprentice. <laughs> yes, I, should, I, I missed an opportunity there to, to introduce you as as would I would I say the master? Would I say the apprentice? Ooh. I thought you were going to say, and I'm not doing this alone. Uh, it's the apprentice to my master. It's the Kamakura to my snake eyes. It's a real American <laughs> Tim. It's Tim Finn. Thanks, Tim. That's what I thought would happen. I should have done that. The, the audience will never know now. Before we get right into Master and Apprentice, there was a bit, tiny bit of previous business that I wanted to to discuss. I just got in the post from a friend of the show, Josh Eggerbean, uh, the After Action Report Volume Two, which is all about the Devil's Due era. It's a, a you know, it's a great little tome here. Tell us about the cover. Uh, well, I did a deep dive with uh, with Josh on a, on an ep- another episode as we trailed it, but yeah, it's got a full color cover, brand new art by Devil's Due head honcho Josh Blaylock. So uh, yeah, nice uh, action filled uh, cover with uh, some of the key touchstones of the Devil's Due era, including uh, Zanya Kamakura, shipwreck in the Devil's Due era outfit. It's a uh, it's a it's an attractive cover. And it's got an exclusive bit of uh, art on the back there from uh, Tim Seeley as well, marking the uh, funeral of Lady J. And this will go on your shelf next to volume one of After Action Report, which has the Rod Wiggum cover and covers the Marvel years of G.I. Joe comics. Indeed. And we'll be joined by volume three when that is out. Right, right. We'll cover the Larry Hammer IDW era. One five five and a half through to three hundred and more. Did you have you got this volume, Tim, or not yet? I forgot to back it, and I said this to Josh at Assembly Required. Uh, I said I should come over and buy one, and he said, "Well, I only brought a few, and I was going to maybe sell these or hand these over to people who had backed it." And I said, "Oh well, I don't want to take one that you might uh-huh. need for this weekend," and. He said, also, you don't have to buy one. You can just you can just take one because you contributed to volume one. Right. Well, so I thought nice. that was nice. So then I forgot to go get my copy of volume two. So when volume three 
uh, when that campaign goes up, I'll I'll say something to Josh. It's and and for benefit of of Tim and the readers, if you want your copy earlier than than that, um, you can also just buy it direct from the After Action Report. Google G.I. Joe After Action Report and it'll find you'll take you to their website and they've got a store where you can buy volume one and volume two. And what I discovered mm. read, reading this volume is that, that there was a little nugget that we missed talking about uh, from the Brandon Jerwa run of the, the main comics, which was that in the Devil's Due trade paperback number eight, the Rise of the Red Shadows trade paperback, they included a five-page section which was titled Rest Well Soldier and it was a little, I guess, vignette from Lady J's funeral sort of with um, Flint sort of thinking back to, to some of their their memories. Oh, that's great. Is it, uh, who's it written by? Who's it drawn by? Uh, let me see. Does it say? So th- th- you're saying this, this is new material that was not in the issues that was added for the paperback collection. Exactly. Yes. So it looks like uh, it's small print. Um, it looks like this bonus uh, story was written by the edits, the, the, the guy who normally edits, Mike O'Sullivan, with pencils by Nelson Blake II. That's cool. Um, I uh, wish I had a copy of that for when we did that story in 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 an episode of Talking Joe. I wonder if that's included in the IDW disavowed. Yes, I believe they included it in the oh, IDW reprint. Okay, okay. Yeah. that's cool. So then there's sort of a, a second chance to get it because yeah. uh, anecdotally and also from Josh Blaylock when we interviewed him. Uh, I believe and we know that the Devils Do trade paperbacks, those skinny ones that were all four or five or six issues, did not have high print runs. Mm-hmm. So as a as a as a reader who's doing the Devils Do run in good faith, I don't want to miss anything since it's uh, so small or so short, I should say, and it wasn't in the original issues. I forgive myself for missing it. And apologies to any mega fans who have that collection who, when we did the episode, uh, noted that we didn't cover that. Uh, I guess it's, isn't an epilogue? Yeah, I guess it's like a yeah, bookend. And later uh, on an episode of Talking Joe, we will definitely talk about a five-page story that was added to a future Devil's <laughs> Due collection of a Devil's Due story, uh, which I'll just leave as that tease. <laughs> and I know what you I know you well enough to know exactly what you're talking about, Tim. Uh, also, you know, G.I. Joe fans probably know what I'm talking about. Uh Master and Apprentice. Mark, did you read this when it was originally published? Uh yeah, I would have done. Yeah, I was getting all of these and reading them as they were coming out. So so yeah, I would have done. As with the Devil's Do issues from then, do you not have a distinct memory of reading it or or do you? Yeah, only sort of only, yeah, very hazy memories. If if before prior to my reread, if you were to pressure me on on what exactly was in that issue, I would not have been able to tell you beyond <laughs> beyond knowing that it was about Snake Eyes and Kamakura, and it was a bit of a, a, a an origin story for Kamakura. But um, beyond that, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I did not read it at the time, and. I was 
intrigued momentarily because this was going to be something separate from the main Devil's Due continuity. So to remind our listeners who know this well, I, I stayed for the first 10 or so issues of the Devil's Due run. I dropped the book. I came back for issue 21 because that was really exciting. And because this was going to be separate, uh, briefly I considered reading it. But then I realized uh, that it was the guy who was writing the main book. And even if it wasn't the main story, it had a character from the main story who I didn't care for, Kamakura. And if it was going to be ninja-focused and sort of separate from the main story, I I wasn't optimistic that I would get anything out of the story for it not being written by Larry Hama. So I, I didn't read it at the time. But I think I did note that the art in it was more exciting than most of the art in all of the Devil's Due issues up until that point. And I think I slightly filed away the artist's name, Stefano Caselli, for when he, A, did the second Master and Apprentice miniseries, and B, when he, and when he showed up to draw the main book, uh, G.I. Joe, America's Elite. Anecdotally, I bumped into an issue from one of these two miniseries. I think it was an issue from, I don't remember if it was Master and Apprentice 1 or 2, but two years ago I was making some um, uh, sort of grab bags uh, for Halloween to give away to neighborhood kids instead of uh, candy. And I mm-hmm. had this one random issue of Master and Apprentice, I think from a weird eBay buy. And I read it <laughs> and I thought, I can't tell what's going on in this. <laughs> and it was not in issue one. It wasn't Master Apprentice one. It wasn't Master Apprentice volume two, number one. So maybe the creative team can be forgiven. Um, but I might come back to that thread as we talk about these four issues. Uh, I do want to say now I am a fan of uh, Stefano Caselli, both for the work he did on America's Elite and then also when he pretty quickly got snapped up by Marvel to draw Amazing Spider-Man and uh, was it Avengers the Initiative? And uh, why just just this morning I read the new issue of X-Men Red, which he drew two thirds of, oh. and he's been he's been the main artist on this series. Oh wow! Yeah, I was just going to hover over Steph- Stefano Caselli there because um, at the time that he drew this, he was relatively new into his career. It looked like sort of most of the the work that he began sort of doing in the more of the mainstream was at Devil's Due in in this sort of period two thousand and three two thousand and four that he'd worked on Micronauts. Uh, hack slash with tim seeley and he did the first issue on that so i think he's credited as the co-creator of hack slash uh, he did a series called defects and then then i think the main body of work was was this master and apprentice the gi joe america's elite ongoing issues zero to eight and and then uh sort of bit getting uh snapped up by by marvel uh, Civil War, Young Avengers, and Runaways. Then a long run on the Avengers of the Initiative, and and sort of spreading his wings further into yeah the likes of I guess the one of the premier books, uh, Amazing Spider-Man included. And and I thought as well that there's some parallels there to to the career path of Nitho Diaz of sort of coming onto the GI Joe book, 
um, with quite a, a bold, dynamic style, which was a little different to the kind of the established style of the the book. You know, doing his thing in the GI Joe world for a bit, and then getting snapped up by by Marvel. And uh, of course, Netho has been been doing some some Marvel books in in recent months, likes of Thunderbolts and uh, and so on. Yeah, these two creators who uh, are not in America work for smaller American companies and then work for bigger American companies is also a a trend in American comics. There are a lot of creators who Marvel and DC and Dark Horse and Image snap up from, uh, you know, in the case of Marvel and DC, snap up from Dark Horse and IDW or Xenoscope or boom and in the case of sort of that second tier of publisher under marvel and dc they're snapping up from the third and fourth tier of publisher and this is actually sort of the sort of the end of the cycle if you've ever seen an interview with an editor or gone to a panel at a convention where someone an artist says how do i or i guess a writer says how do i break into comics and they say publish your own work or get published by a small publisher because it's much more believable to an editor when you walk up to them at a convention and you show them some comics that you have drawn for a publisher, even if it's not a great publisher or not a book that anyone's heard of or not a character that you want to stick with forever. But it's one thing to have sample pages, which look good. It's another thing to show a printed comic, which shows that you were you know, trustworthy enough to finish a job. And then, you know, the editor at, at, at the larger or the much larger publisher then, you know, has has more faith in your uh, in your ability to deliver. All right. So Master and Apprentice. Creative team. Yeah. So the creative team are Story, Brandon Joa. Brandon, Brandon, Brandon Joa. Artwork, Stefano Caselli and Sundar Raj. I assume that the split of that is... Stefano is is pencils and inks, uh, or or potentially just pencils and Sundaraj being colours. I I strongly believe that is pencils and colours. <laughs> the unsaid thing there being no no inks probably. Yeah, you can if you look up close at a lot of the lines in this story, you you can you can see they're like slightly 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 scratchy or like slightly slightly not pure black. They're like dark 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 grey. Please continue. Lettering, Dreamer Design, Editor Mark Powers, Graphic Design Mike Norton, Military Consultation Andrew Swenson, and covers largely by Stefano Caselli. There is an additional editor on issue one. That's Marshall Dillon. Issue one, the editor is Marshall Dillon with Mark Powers. Hmm. I don't recognize that name. I don't don't either. Um, Isn't this also when in the... Uh, in one of the Devil's Do news pages in the back, isn't this when they announced that Mark Powers, who had been an X-Men... Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So in the back of issue two on the Devil's Do news page, former Marvel editor joins Devil's Do. And then, because this is a joke, adds the letter X to all titles. <laughs> so former X-Men editor Mark Powers takes on the role of DD's senior editor. So the joke is that you know, it's going to be like XGI Joe and mm-hmm. X Voltron and X Street Fighter, I guess. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. 
Okay, so so we've got a fair few covers to get through. So so maybe let's not delve into the detail of every single one of them. But is what what would you like to highlight about these covers, Tim? Yes. So um, uh, no variant covers, right? There are a few, I believe. Oh. I can even flick to my let me to my book. oh right. Let me uh, uh, right. <laughs> let me go let me go to this website where I look up all my covers. So yeah, I think the the variants aren't particularly exciting, but uh, oh yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, all right. So, in in broad strokes, I'm going to talk about. And there's also an exclusive uh, trade paperback cover as well, which right. I you, think you reuses talk about... an image. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, I'll briefly talk about one, two, three, four. Uh, one had a pencils only variant, and uh, that was a second printing. And one had a third printing, which was just the uh, just the Arachikage symbol with no other artwork on it. Okay, so these four covers are fun because they all share two or three motifs. They all have the Urashikaje logo in the background, the alternating broken and solid red lines. They all have head and shoulder or sort of head, eyes, close-up depictions of the two or three major characters in this miniseries, the master and the apprentice, and then a bad guy. And they all have a sword motif. So on the issue one cover, Snake Eyes and Kamakura are holding their swords, and their swords become sort of one item due to the compositional overlap of them. And on the second cover, uh, similarly, their swords become sort of one sword. And then on the third cover... It's photos of them on a table, and there's a sword stuck into the table. And then on the fourth one, it's uh, close-ups of swords. And uh, this this is where you can really tell that uh, Caselli is penciling only. If you look at, I guess it's Storm Shadow's eyebrow or uh, some of the details right above Snake Eyes' visor. But uh, on the cover to four, you see three sword tips that are overlapping. And in the, in the reflections of them, you see these close-ups of Kamakura's eyes and Snake Eyes' visor and and Storm Shadow. Um, The other thing that jumps out about these four covers, because of the red symbol that is in the background of each of them, and because they sort of continually show Snake Eyes and Kamakura and Snake Eyes and Kamakura, if you put these covers next to each other and you squint, they all look more similar than dissimilar. And I'm not saying that you would mix up one for another, but they do feel of a piece, and that's something that I like. I do think in general, uh, in a monthly series, you should make one cover look distinct from the next cover, particularly if at a comic book store, those two comics are going to sit next to each other. Sometimes you have an issue of Batman next to last month's issue of Batman, and you know both of them are like nighttime Batman like swinging or up on a rooftop with a lot of black ink and... They might be different drawings, but they're they're pretty similar. And then you look at any two issues of Saga, the monthly series from Image, and they always have a very bold, different, distinct background color, uh, different from the previous month. So I like how these four Master and Apprentice covers feel related. The other thing that jumps out at me is the, uh, the font treatment of the subtitle Master and Apprentice. Uh, the the actual letter forms, they are stylized to resemble Japanese letter forms. Mm-hmm. 
And I think they are very, very, very slightly hard to read, these two words, master and apprentice. I think having the giant ampersand somewhat come before the word master slightly confuses it. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate that in sort of every way, these four covers look different from the run of covers that was happening at the same time in the main G.I. Joe book, and that these announced themselves as a, a separate thing as a miniseries. Very good. Yeah, there were a couple of uh, there were a couple of variant covers, mostly which sort of repurposed interior art. So, uh, the Master and Apprentice trade paperback has got a cover sort of with a figure of Kamakura and Snake Eye sort of split down the middle, which was a double page splash from issue four and. Issue four has a cover B second printing, which is the the full page splash of Kamakura, which is how the sort of the book wraps up. And then there's a cover one variant, which I think is an image which is used on as a back cover or, or trailing the next issue else elsewhere. Um, so so sort of yeah, not not missing out too much if you don't have those variants because the images are elsewhere within the book. Um, shall I do a plot breakdown? Yes. There's a lot that happens, Tim. So this was quite tricky. It might it might be longer than a typical plot breakdown, but uh, here we go. I I thought about going super short and just doing a sentence, and then I thought, no, that's that's too short. I'm ready for a long one. Go for it. Okay, that's what uh, that's what she said. Okay, right. Uh, plot breakdown. In the period that the GI Joe team is disbanded, Snake Eyes is training a new apprentice named Ophelia. Snake Eyes and Ophelia go on a final ninja training test, a mission to capture Firefly. In parallel, Duke and Chuckles are working with Sean Collins's Hammer Team on the same objective. This mission meets with tragic consequences. Firefly kills Ophelia and all of the Hammer Team except Sean Collins die in an explosion. Snake Eyes misses his wedding to Scarlet and takes Sean Collins as his new apprentice. After some time of training, Sean is about to face his final trial. Jinx, Budo, Snake Eyes and Sean attempt to capture Firefly when Storm Shadow makes an unexpected appearance. After a tussle, it is revealed that Duke and Chuckles have been working with Storm Shadow to catch Firefly as well as the mysterious figure known as Nowhere Man. Nowhere Man is revealed to be Sean's old Hammer Team leader, Mikhail Derenko who was supposed to have died on that previous ill-fated mission. Wade Collins, Sean's father, is recruited by Nowhere Man so that he can use his Crimson Guard Fred series face to unlock facial rec recognition in a secret vault. He has the misguided notion that he is helping Sean, but he dies in the process. Sean realises that Snake Eyes loved Ophelia like a sister, much like Snake Eyes' twin sister, who had been killed in a car accident, which makes the whole jilting Scarlet thing okay after all, for some reason. Duke reveals various shenanigans about that original mission that he was working with Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow all along. And then in an action-packed finale, the baddies end up escaping. Finally, Sean Collins graduates as an apprentice master of the Arashikage clan. He chooses his new name, Kamakura, and reveals his new hexagram arm tattoo. Phew. 
All right. So you're, it, it feels like an initial top-down comment from you would be that there is a lot of story in these four issues. Do you, yes. do you want to expand on a top-down reaction to this miniseries? There is there is definitely a lot that that happens in this series, and there's a lot being crammed in. It it felt to me like maybe if if it was five or six issues, it, it would have a little bit more room to breathe. But uh, sort of getting getting down a bit of a of a sort of a <laughs> particular lane there. The, the thought the thought that I had uh, a very high level is is it looks like this series is there to kind of sort of fill a fairly distinct purpose so it it, it so its mission statement is let's have a story that taking place in between the disbanding of gi joe which is 1995 and the return in 2001 of the gi joe team in in issue one of devil's due continuity and and serve two purposes give kamakura a, a backstory and an origin and at the same time, you can kind of explain what what was that whole thing that happened with Snake Eyes jilting Scarlet, which hasn't uh, previously really been been resolved. And yeah, I wondered to to what extent what extent kind of Brandon Joa, you know, the credited writer, came at this with just a completely blank piece of paper or a, a, you know just an idea off of his own back. I want to do a uh, a, a mini series, and I want this to be the subject. Uh, yeah, so so you know. It'd be interesting to know what maybe we can we can next time we speak to him we can we can ask this to to what degree there was direction of what he he should do versus this being the story that that he wants to to tell because unconstrained by the rest of continuity this is kind of its own standalone thing so so it feels like there's probably quite a lot of freedom to to tell the story that he wants to tell but constrained by those elements of continuity that he's kind of has to has to remain uh, true to like you know the state of storm shadow during this time getting back to that point about it being quite packed i did find it quite a confusing read i did find myself going back and and rereading panels and and sections trying to figure out exactly what was was happening and it was clearer for me on a second read i did a an initial read and then a a kind of reread immediately before this to to kind of refresh my my memory of it and the the second read it, it sort of seemed to, to hang together a little bit more easily i think just because of building up more of a familiarity with the story i think just helps with you know just like with the with the deck building game or whatever the first time you're doing it you're just looking so hard at the all of the different mechanics and the complexities that you kind of lose some of that that enjoyment of it just flowing more naturally can I respond to that? Go for it. Because I, I think I think it's totally fair for something to be better or make more sense on a second read or watch. And uh, certainly the G.I. Joe Renegade deck building game was impossible for me to learn when I tried to do it by myself, opening the box, and I needed a, a second go, you know, watching a video or having someone explain it to me. But I do think you should be able to hand a four-issue miniseries to anyone whether they're a G.I. Joe fan or not, and they should be able to follow it. And so I'm not criticizing you for reading it a second time. My dissatisfaction comes from only giving it the one time and not not being able to follow everything. By, by the time I got to the end, I understand everything, but there were several panels and several scenes where I thought, 
oh, I don't know who I'm looking at in this panel, or, oh, I don't know how this person got from where they were on the previous page or the previous panel to here, or, oh, there are too many characters in this scene and I'm seeing too many of them from behind and they're all sort of in the same color, this dark, dark gray costume. So good for me that I'd be able to figure it out if I read it a second time, but I'm only going to give it, I think a fair shake is just the one time. And so so I'm I'm disappointed that it, there are too many characters and I agree with you, this really needed to be five or six issues. And initially I was delighted that it was only four issues because in the 2000s, we're in the era of six issue miniseries and six issue story arcs. And the publishers had, um, maybe Dark Horse is an exception, uh, and you know, occasionally boom. But I feel like Marvel and DC had moved away from four issue miniseries in favor of six issue miniseries. And some of that is about decompressed storytelling, you know, mo- bigger art, more art, fewer word balloons, stretching it out into more issues. And some of that is about having a thicker collection. It's easier to sell a book that's a little thicker on a on a shelf at a bookstore if it's six issues worth than four issues worth. And and nostalgically, you know, uh, G.I. Joe and Transformers, the miniseries from 86, 87, that's four issues. And Marvel was doing a ton of four-issue miniseries in the 80s. And that was mostly, initially, that was the format. Miniseries were four issues. So... In terms of how much story is here, there is too much. But also, I I was willing to be convinced. I don't love the character of Kamakura, and I don't like the the story where Snake Eyes has left Scarlet at the altar. But I was willing to have those made more interesting or explained, uh, and sort of bring me over to their side. And and this miniseries didn't do that for me. Yeah, it was an interesting, uh, you know, that that thing you talk about it being slightly overcrowded, and I was just maybe start thinking, could you tell the same or, or materially the same story without these components? And I was thinking, could you sell tell the same story without Jinx, Nunchuck, Chibang, Budo, Chuckles? Even could you have told it without uh, Wade Collins? No, here's here's an example at the end. When the helicopter comes to pick up uh, Firefly, there are two or three other bad guys in the helicopter. Mm. Why not one or why not zero? Why not just have an empty helicopter and Firefly makes his own getaway? And, you know, this needed to tie into there's a mystery set up at the end with uh, with who the other bad guys are, which we can get to later in the episode when we're talking about the end of the story. But, yes, you make a good point that I think it's this it's this. It feels like a, a rookie G.I. Joe mistake. Oh, it's a team book. Everyone has so many favorite characters. All these characters are so cool. I want to put in a lot of characters. Yeah, and I, I get, you know, th- this is a ninja story and we've not had any of the, what do they call themselves? The ninja squad, Snake Eyes and the other G.I. Joe nin- neon ninjas. Ninja Force? <laughs> ninja Force, thank you. You, you mean the, the toy branding? Yeah, exactly. So the toy branding of the Ninja Force, which took up a, a rather large section of the the latter run of the Marvel run of GI Joe, and so we've not seen them in since since then. So to have uh, the Green Ninja Nunchuck and Chibang, who we know as being uh, from the Marvel books, of being the the guy with sort of the yellow mask and who had a Oath of Silence, 
you know, we're doing a bigger ninja story. You know, wouldn't it be cool to bring back some of those ninjas and sort of have a larger cast and, and you know, fun fanboy service. And, and yeah, I get that. It, it, is, it is fun to a degree, but it, it's more pieces to juggle and, and makes things, uh, what you're sacrificing for that wider cast you're, you're losing in terms of ability to, to craft a slightly clearer story. Like page one, even, you know, just the first couple of pages where they're sparring. I, I, I had to look back on that about five times to figure out what was going on, who was who. Um, yeah. And at least in that scene, there there are four characters in that scene. There's one guy with black hair and a, and a white uniform. There is someone in a blue mask. There's a redhead uh, female and then there are snake eyes. So you can, even if you can't quite tell sort of the choreography of where they are in the room and sort of who's attacking who, at least there are four distinct characters and you can differentiate them. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to your previous point about uh, Chibang and Nunchuck showing up, I feel like there's a, there's a question that gets asked, an unspoken question. Where is Dojo? If you're going to have two of the three characters, you know, that first year of Ninja Force action figures, yeah. there were these three new Joes. And, you know, it's not like Huey and Dewey and Louie, and they always have to show up together and like finish each other's sentences. But it does beg the question. Also, if you're going to have two of these guys show up, but they're never in costume, is it really them? You know, like there there have been a couple Batman stories over the years in comics where He's dressed up in one of his alter egos, like Matches Malone. He's got, you know, a mask and a wig on. Or he takes off the Bat costume um, because he has to go somewhere and not be recognizable as Batman and also not as Bruce Wayne. He just sort of wears like a hood or like a jacket or something. And if there's some sign that it's still kind of Batman, it's still kind of Batman. But sooner than later, I need to see Batman in his Batman costume. Otherwise, it's not exciting and it's kind of not Batman. And Jinx is never in her costume. Budo's never in his costume. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Budo's costume is is silly. Like, it's silly to have a guy running around in full samurai gear in 2005 or 2000, you know, 21, because he showed up in some recent issues of Larry Hama's Real American Hero. But this is the, this is the deal with the devil I've made as a as this kind of G.I. Joe fan. Like, no, I like Budo because he's got this cool costume from that toy from 1988. And if you take him out of that costume and just put him in like CIA SWAT gear or like cool Matrix Ninja, like black trench coat, he sort of stops being Budo. And also uh, he disappears for an issue. And then someone mentions someone named Kyle. And I actually wrote down... Who's Kyle? Is Kyle <laughs> Budo? Am I supposed to know Budo's first name? And a handful of listeners are going to think right now, yes, because some <laughs> people have memorized all or many of the file card dossiers from the toys. And I've memorized, you know, like 10, you know, it's like the 10 sort of favorite characters from 82, 83, 84, 85. But it's like, no, I need a little more here. Because Budo only showed up in the Marvel book like twice and never on the show and uh, not in the Devil's Due comics before this. And I, I don't even think, looking back to that scene in issue... Anyway, um, so yeah. 
not only too many characters, but also, um, and I, I think, I think sort of the rule here is they're not in costume because GI Joe's been disbanded, and that that does make sense. But still, I, I need them in something more fun than just wearing what Neo wore in the Matrix. I mean, there's something inherently a little bit silly about GI Joe and the costumes they they wear, and you sort of just suspend your disbelief on that. Yes. I've got I've got one word for you. Robin. <laughs> like up until a redesign a couple years ago, like Robin's costume has always been kind of silly and we're just also it's child endangerment. Anyway, sorry, back to you. Yeah, but you know, we go with it. The costumes are fun and the the big benefit as you're alluding to is that it makes them really distinctive and you can just see very quickly and easily what the character is from their distinct costume and when you've got an entire cast of characters all wearing very similar dark sneak suits type uh, snake eyes cosplay as we've called it before it doesn't help with the the clarity of of just understanding what's going on and who's who yeah and, if you're and, ping-ponging and I- between between fights, between characters, between scenes, as as they do in some of the action sequences, you're sort of going from from one room to another, you know, between two people fighting <laughs> in the dark, in the dark, in black costume. Very particularly in issue one, Snake Eyes's team, they're all wearing what he wears from the neck down. And then in issues three and four, Budo and Jinx and Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow I mean, Storm Shadow is technically wearing white and the other three are technically wearing, I don't think we're supposed to read it as black. We're supposed to read it as as a as a dark gray. But the lighting, Sunjur Raj's coloring, ends up making them all the same. And then on top of that, in issue four, some, some sort of surprise characters show up and some of them wearing masks and some of them are just guards, miscellaneous guards in this underground vault. And... Um, you know, I mean, the animated series or the Marvel issues, it's like, oh, that Cobra soldier, that guy in blue, I definitely know that that's not like Chuckles or Snake Eyes. Like, oh, that Cobra Viper, I definitely know that's not Chuckles or Snake Eyes. Okay, I think I think we've gotten this point. Um, I, w- I want to talk for a minute about uh, Stefano Caselli's art. He draws such aggressive, handsome cool, attitude-y eyes. He draws great eyes and great eyebrows. And I'm going to I'm going to pick on someone as a comparison because it it's like, well, yeah, what, what's what's the deal with these good eyes? Look at all of these just just sort of in the Kamakura or like Storm Shadow sort of visor area. Just just the eyes, right? As a comparison in the in the regular Larry Hama Real American Hero book. I love Shannon Gallant's storytelling, his poses, his acting. I don't love how he draws eyes. They always seem to be a little bit of an afterthought. He draws them, but they always feel like 80% finished to me. And that's that's his whole run. That's the recent issues at the end of the IDW run that had tougher deadlines. That's the early issues. That's the middle issues with different anchors. Stefano Caselli draws very 
handsome eyes on men and women, when people are surprised, when they're frowning. And oh man, does, does, does Stefano Caselli draw furrowed brows, like every other <laughs> expression he ever draws in all of comics. That's X-Men Red that I read this morning and Amazing Spider-Man and Avengers the Initiative and G.I. Joe and G.I. Joe and G.I. Joe. He draws like when someone's got one eyebrow cocked and one eyebrow furrowed, when someone's got that, you know, like, like you, you know, the, this, the expression on Storm Shadow from Mike Zeck's cover to issue 45 of G.I. Joe where Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow have bust through the door and Storm Shadow looks pissed, right? It's like, <laughs> that's just sort of every other set of eyes that Caselli draws. And it's so cool. And and I want, you know, comics should be an exaggeration. I always think of this comparison that uh, Stan Lee and John Buscema make in the book, How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way, where Buscema draws a six panel scene of like James Jonah Jameson on the phone. And then I think some like a villain crashes through the wall and he draws it sort of tepidly. And then he draws it again with more dramatic posing exaggeration and camera angles and stan lee makes the point that in a marvel comic not like those other guys you know we exaggerate things so cool that's happening here but it actually ends up being too much because when joe's or uh, this hammer team when they're getting briefed when there's like a picnic with the ninjas when like stalkers in traffic or scarlet's in traffic sort of Every panel ends up looking like this photograph of like poison or Guns N' Roses or Warrant from 1989, where it's like a band photo of a hard rock band and they're all like attitude, like looking down at you a little bit. And so I love the exaggeration. I actually think Caselli some of the time should um, ease off. Mm. I think there are two things here happening with the lack of clarity in the art. I think he's still pretty new in his comics career here, and he draws he draws anatomy quite well, and his you know fight posing it's it's good and some of it's great. But a GI Joe is a hard book to draw because there's so many characters, and b Brandon Sherwa gives him a lot to do, and I think sort of the uh, some evidence that this is five issues or six issues worth of story in four issues is the panel count. There are lots of pages where there are like, okay, I just opened up page one and uh, excuse me, issue one and uh, page two, the second page of the entire miniseries, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 panels. Now that's totally cool. And you can do a bunch of smaller panels during a fight because it's like, one fist hitting a face or one foot missing a shoulder or like close up on some eyes. But this happens through all four issues. And I think Brandon Jerwa gives Stefano Caselli too much to do, not enough space. And the, the other thing that I sort of thought looking at the, the art is that Stefano Caselli has got a particular physical type that he, he draws. So beyond like the color of the the hair and the sort of distinction of a particular hair cut most of the faces and the body types are very very similar you know sort of very very muscly built stocky you know square types and and 
any one character switch their hairstyle over they could be another yeah if if i if i don't look carefully i i agree with you but there are some to be fair there are some notable exceptions so a couple pages into issue one when hammer team is getting this briefing there's this three-star general who Mm -hmm. looks sort of like an 80 year old james jonah jameson actually he he has sort of more gaunt cheekbones and a receding hairline and a mustache and then caselli does make an attempt to always draw um sean collins with a a narrower uh face and certainly the women in this series uh sort of on the team and then jinx uh and when we see scarlet once or twice they have softer uh cheeks but yes most of the other characters sort of duke the, the two other guys in the hammer team have this have sort of square jaws and you know there are lots of artists who sort of have one or two stock faces or like facial types in comics and that's that's a common shorthand so it's sort of not even worth criticizing most comics artists for not really differentiating facial types right like we we can't all be like uh kevin mcguire um but when there are so many close-ups of head and shoulders and someone doesn't have something really telltale like like a headset radio it's like okay this guy has a headset radio and that guy doesn't or like this guy has a mustache that guy doesn't or this guy is wearing like a very particular bright and colorful gi joe costume and that guy doesn't when as you've said they all start to be in like sneak suits or fatigues or like snake eyes cosplay yes uh caselli draws everyone like a very sexy beefy army rock star <laughs> that's actually the name of my gi joe miniseries sexy beefy <laughs> it's about chuckles going undercover uh they're gonna be some cult leather jokes i'm gonna finally wor- work gristle into a story because i'm gonna create a backstory <laughs> for him where he's some kind of musician i don't know whether destro has rescued him from anyway back to master and apprentice um what we're we talking about uh face faces and body yeah. types do we talk about color as well yeah obviously yeah. It, that this you know the color treatment is quite different to the to the rest of the books from from devil's due up to this this point it sort of feels a lot more painterly but uh so so there's a you know a lot to like about it in in terms of um the you, you can see that that there's a lot of heavy lifting being done in the color in the colors my second thought beyond beyond that though is that that they're quite muddy and they're quite dark and that in, in places makes it a little bit harder going Yes. So um, I agree. And I agree that much of the coloring is muddy. And when I use that word to describe color, I think sometimes people are thinking only browns or grays and blacks. And there actually is a lot of light, uh, light sources and highlights in Sundararaj's color in this book. And so I want to add a word to your description, your criticism of Muddy. So if you look in issue three, there's this fight on the rooftop. And there are a lot of light sources because there are all these office buildings around and all these sort of lights are on in the city at night. So what ends up happening is every little shape, every wrinkle 
of clothing, every sort of band of hair, every finger gets a highlight and a middle tone and a shadow and, and then gradations in between. And so it ends up being quite busy. And so there is a lot of darks, but there are also a lot of lights. And the net effect is too many darks and too many lights. And this is that's that's the sort of definition when I sometimes use the, the prescription overcolored. Sundaraj has a, a really nice sense of light, but he overdoes it in almost every scene in this book. And if you give me a second, I actually wrote down I wrote down a panel that I wanted to point out, which is like my representation of this. And my example of this, right? It's it's all over the book, uh, the series. But in issue four, on page seven, and I'm not counting the credits, so art pages. So if you're looking at the issue, it's opposite the Valor versus Venom DVD ad. Panel four is Snake Eyes turning back to Kamakura as Kamakura takes his mask off. And the rendering on Kamakura's face and his hand is what I'm talking about. So you have these really nice, pretty highlights on Sean's forehead and on his cheeks and on his nose. And you also have these really bright highlights on his fingers where he's taking his mask off and on his hair. And you don't see it because it's covered by the word balloons, but not quite highlights, but sort of some higher midtones on his green tunic. And, you know, like the lighting in this scene comes from a candle on his right, our left, and also, I don't know, like a door. Yeah, there's, there's a door that's open uh, across from them. And so, it, so but the, the actual sort of painting on Kamakura's face, uh, Sean's face, and his fingers, it's as if there's a light bulb hanging just off panel above him, like those heavy shadows under his eyes. And even the heavy shadows sort of under his like front spikes of hair so there's too much. The coloring is too busy on sort of every panel and over every surface. And, you know, when I talk about um, liking old school comics coloring, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s at Marvel and DC, or when I talk about colorists who use a limited palette like, uh, like Wes Craig on uh, Deadly Class or his new image series, which is called Kaya, K-A-Y-A, or... Lee Lowridge, who's colored a bunch of stuff for DC and Dark Horse over the years, but I sort of best know him. Oh, and a lot of Vertigo. Uh, he colored Gotham Central, the the, the cop book. Um, yep. You know, you look at Gotham Central and like that's meant to agree with the art. The art is pretty flat and sort of every like pair of pants or every shirt has like just two colors. It's like the color that it is and a little bit of a shading color or cell shading in any book that's trying to look like animation or uh, a colorist who like Dave Stewart, who colors most of the Hellboy books, right? Dave Stewart uses a lot of colors, but sort of never all at once, never all in one scene. And so Master and Apprentice, it's like, okay, it's not inked. So the pencils are subtly, subtly dirty or fuzzy that like slightly affects sort of everything on the page. If you like inked this and erased all the pencils, it would look a little bit sharper, a little bit higher contrast. And then you have this really aggressive like light sourcing sort of on every object and every aspect of every object. And then on top of it, you have crowded scenes and 
like a lot of furrowed brows, which cast shadows and, you know, a lot of characters. And so even the coloring is adding to this sort of confusion or busyness. And uh, I can say one more thing about uh, Sunjur Raj. Uh, uh, TFWiki.net, the, the Transformers fan wiki, says that um, he was or is, uh, he's an art director at Volta. Volta is a is an art studio based in Canada that has done a lot of work for Hasbro on Transformers package art in the last few years, some of which was on the actual boxes of Transformers and some of which was on like the trading cards that came uh, with those. So uh, this is not a name that I know from a lot of uh, comics or maybe any other comics, but um, he is out there. Uh, he has been out there doing other other artwork. So what do you, you want to talk about next? <laughs> I want to talk about I want to talk about story next. Okay, so even if, you know, I don't like Kamakura and uh, I hadn't liked The Devil's Do Run, but back in t- 2005, I considered reading this and for this episode, I was still excited to read this, right? But, you know, it's still got to all hang together with characters that I believe in doing things that I believe in and are exciting. And early in the episode, you mentioned sort of so many characters and there ends up being not just sort of so many characters and too much story, but um, like one or like a speech and an info dump that took me out of the story. So in in issue three on page 20, it's the third to last page. So it's when Duke is talking to Snake Eyes and they're standing on that sort of checkerboard floor and Duke hands Snake Eyes a little camcorder. Yep. Okay. So. I really don't like this speech. You are one of the best men I've ever known. You are powerful, disciplined, and devoted to your principles. But you're also a coward. And then Duke has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 more word balloons on the rest of the page. And then on the next page, the scene continues and Duke has another 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 word balloons. Jerwa is dealt the hand he's dealt because... Way back when, in the main book, Blaylock had already had Snake Eyes leave Scarlet at the altar. And we talked about that many episodes ago. And I don't think Snake Eyes would do that. And the previous host, Jay Cordray of Talking Joe, didn't like that either. We do get the benefit for Jay of, of there being another panel of Scarlet looking at her ring and crying, which is, um, right. I'm sure he'd enjoy. Anyway... Continue. Okay, so you know, I know, I know, like popularly, I know a little about reverse psychology. Like, no one, no one gets to go up and call Snake Eyes a coward. Like, that just doesn't ring true for me. And so, some of this scene, some of this miniseries, is is reminding me of decisions in writing from previous stories from a different writer that I I didn't that didn't work for me. And so, maybe some of this miniseries can't work for me at all. So then you know, on this page, Duke hands Snake Eyes a camcorder, and I don't actually know what what story idea I'm supposed to be getting from this. Yeah. How long has it been since you left Scarlet at the altar? A couple years at least, right? And so there's an image on this camcorder of Scarlet wearing a dress in a room somewhere with, I don't know, like a f- fancy doorway or like a fancy 
painting on the wall or like a fancy curtain. I can't quite tell what the vertical lines are in the background. And then there's someone behind her smiling, wearing a tie. You're looking at two month old film. Do you see what you've left her with? No. <laughs> is Scarlet at a cocktail party? Is she at uh, like a, a wine and cheese thing after a military briefing? Is she at a, it's not, a, it's not a seedy bar. Like, I think the idea here is that she's single and she's jilted. So she's looking for a man. She's looking for a date. She's looking for a warm body in the sack and she's dressed up to go out. But we're in so close. I sort of don't know what the location is. And it's like, is she holding a glass of water? Or is she like fingering her ring finger and there's no ring on it? Is she holding a glass of wine? Is there a different male on the other side of her who's leaning in too close and his eyes are closed and he's like burping. Like, I don't know what this, what this story point is supposed to communicate. And mm. I think Jirwa sort of underwrites it or is like over trusting Caselli's ability to draw something very particular in this scene or Jirwa isn't giving Caselli enough room to draw it. It needed another panel or something. Oh, and then the third to last page of the entire miniseries. So the last page is a splash. It's like a cool shot of Kamakura. And I, I don't love it. I think what we really need to see is like the room and not that logo behind him. But okay. And the second to last page, uh, I can't tell where we are. Like we're sort of in a cabin, but there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There are eight people in this scene. The scene gets one. The scene gets uh, one page, and we're in, I think, a small cabin up in the High Sierras, and because that's an established location in in GI Joe stories, right? Because the caption says three weeks later in the High Sierras, and I see a little bit of wood, and Kamakura is coming down the stairs. It's like, where is everyone? What room are they in? Are they? It's like, where's the couch? Are they in a dojo? Like, what is this space they're in? But on the previous page. Storm Shadow has this giant speech, which is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 word balloons across one page. And Snaker says nothing. Typical. <laughs> and I understand if you have two people in a scene and one is Snake Eyes, one's going to do all the talking. And like this scene, if you have three people in a scene and one of them is Snake Eyes, one or two of them is going to do all the talking. And I'm not saying I need Snake Eyes to like interrupt and like do a hand gesture or like put his hand on Storm Shadow's shoulder or put his hand on Storm Shadow's wrist and stop him from gesturing. But it's like, oh, th this, when I got to this page, this is what I felt like Brandon Jurwa was thinking. Oh, I'm out of room. The story is over in two pages. I need to put the chess pieces sort of where they need to line up because this is after Storm Shadow got brainwashed around issue 150 in the Marvel run and before Blaylock sort of fixed him around issue whatever it was in the Devil's Due run. But he's been sort of free of this hypnosis in my miniseries in the interim. So I'm going to have him make this giant speech and explain how he feels and how he needs to go back on his own. And I actually like the guts of the speech. I think this bit about in the second to last panel, you know, adrenaline and adrenaline has been the only thing keeping me in check during all of this. And it fades from me as the minutes pass. 
right? Uh, there are no longer sides to choose. I will heal myself over time, but I must do so alone. Goodbye, my friends. Perhaps we'll meet again in better times. Perhaps we'll meet again in 20 issues of The Devil's Do Run, right? Starting from issue one. And this bit where he sort of looks at Sean, like, so you are the apprentice, Sean, is it? You have my respect and gratitude for following my family legacy. Like, okay, that's good. At the same time, man, I just, just like turn the page and slam into this wall of three people standing there and one of them talking. And so this, this miniseries feels, it's not, it's not disjointed, uh, sort of over-explained and over-choreographed and over-constructed. And then, you know, when Firefly gets away or Mikhail gets away earlier, yeah, here's another story moment where I wasn't sure what happened. This is this is an issue four. This is uh, just a couple of pages before what I was talking about. So th the first panel on this page is um, two people climbing up a ladder. Kamakura is chasing Mikhail out of building, out onto the street. Mikhail draws a gun. Uh, he gets hit with three throwing stars. And a car screeches around the corner and Mikhail holding his head because he's got blood because he took a throwing star to the head says ah that's it come and get me and i thought oh man this car is about to run him over and then i thought oh maybe this is bad guys and they're gonna like whisk him away and then i turn the page and he has disappeared and instead we're behind uh sean and he says no no you can't it's like what did Mikhail just get teleported out of there? Like, oh, is he up on the Starship <laughs> Enterprise in orbit? Like, did he apparate to Hogwarts? Like, he's just gone. It's like, oh, I think we needed a panel where we see Mikhail opening a car door mm -hmm. or the car screeches to a stop and there's a door that's flung open and there's a word balloon pointing inside and we don't know who says it. And they say, get in, or even better, get in, Mikhail, or Mikhail, here. And then at the bottom of this page, there's a woman with black hair who might be the Baroness. I don't know. When you put a woman with a, a red blouse and a short skirt and high heels and long black hair in a G.I. Joe story and I can't see her face, I'm going to assume that's the Baroness in like civilian clothes. And she's, I don't know, got a towel or something to Mikhail's head, but I couldn't tell who this was. I thought this was the Nowhere Man or Firefly or Cobra Commander or something. And then I realized the like weird shape of his armor matched the like chest triangle matched Mikhail from the, the earlier in the scene. And then on the next page, the Joes are ready for this building to blow up, right? We're still in the final issue. We're like five pages from the end, four pages from the end. And the building, we see two close-ups of a clock ticking and the building doesn't blow up. And, Duke says to Chuckles, nothing. Firefly just played us. All clear, guys. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. That's great. And then the next panel, I don't know what I'm looking at. Kamakura and Snake Eyes are uh, like wrestling? Mark, what are they doing? <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be like mean or silly. I don't know what this panel represents. Um... Is this like a high five? Is he helping him, is he helping him up, up off the ground? Because I didn't. He yeah, he's help. It looks like he's helping him off off the ground. But I'm just looking back to try and. Figure we didn't out. see. We didn't see Snake Eyes on the ground. Uh. A page ago, we saw Snake Eyes running, 
And one panel ago, uh, four panels ago, we saw two blonde Joes lying on the ground, covering their heads. But since the camera is low, you actually don't see the ground. You just sort of see their heads and shoulders in a pose that suggests they're lying on the ground. Oh yeah, maybe and, maybe had been lying on the ground expecting the bomb to go off. And then they were... So context that makes total sense. Visual continuity unclear and weird. It. I thought that they were like fighting. I thought Snake Eyes was like throwing a weird punch and Kamakura was blocking it. But then that gets a whole beat. And then the next panel, there's this whole beat for this really well drawn, but like sort of way overdone like sigh of relief, like anxiety break from Kamakura, where it's like, I guess the building's not going off. But he's got his his hand on the back of his neck. Like, that's great acting. But like, no, no, that I needed that real estate for something else in this scene. And I'll just do one more thing, like a a, a continuity thing that I don't understand. Um, and you can help me. You can help me with it. You you yeah. You actually just then helped me sort of put something else together that okay. I didn't quite understand in the story. It was because Firefly he announces something about. Oh, listen carefully. It might just saved your life. You're welcome to stay and keep fighting. You know. However, if if you're not a big fan of violent explosives, I'd suggest you get out of the building within the next two minutes. Best of luck as always. And then that sort of means that sort of drives all of everyone to sort of get out of the building, expecting it to blow up. And then you see the the watch. I don't know if we had the time for when the when it was meant to blow up, but it's like four minutes past twelve, and it's red. And then it's four minutes past twelve and ten seconds, and it's green. And 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 for, for whatever reason, Duke um, seems to be very confident that there wasn't any bomb because it didn't go off after ten seconds from an arbitrary time. <laughs> anyway, so so that confused me, but then, then I but but I had been thinking, why did Firefly warn them about it to get out of the building? Why didn't he just get out himself and let them all blow up? That's Moy's style, but I guess it's because there wasn't really a bomb, and he just wanted them to kind of be more focused on something that wasn't him. So that kind of story beat makes more sense. I thought that was cool that he did that. I I wondered by by the middle and end of issue four, I was still reading this carefully but i was reading this a little less carefully than i had been because i had given up on it and i thought (laughs) maybe i'm missing something like what you were just saying but maybe this is about respect for your enemy Mm. and he was also trained in the ninja clan so i thought that was cool that he tricked them to get out of the building um so this one last example that i want to bring up and this is this is this is pretty fast of uh, a storytelling thing i don't understand this is on the first page of issue four we see the outside of a club we see the inside of a club and we are we are we see a long shot of someone leaning forward in a bathroom in front of a mirror with a towel and we we can tell it's a bathroom because there's a door open and there's like some tile behind them in a mirror and then in the next panel we see wade collins looking at into a mirror and it's definitely him looking into a mirror because it's a rear three quarters over the shoulder shot we are just behind him looking over his shoulder past his ear and his 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 cheekbone and we see the reflection and he has a full beard okay the previous panel where we're looking from across the room into the bathroom someone off panel says funny aren't they and then a beat he's looking in the mirror and he has a beard and the word balloon says the mat continuing the masks we wear 
And then all of a sudden, Wade's beard has disappeared and he looks surprised. And then he turns to so he can see and we can see who's talking. And it's I don't know who it turns out to be Mikhail who continues, uh, you're a perfect example, coloring your hair, growing a beard, adding 10 years uh, to your face just to hide the shame. And then in this panel, Wade is looking away from us. Wait, where did his beard go? Was it a, a costume? Like he put on a fake beard before issue one and he just took it off a moment ago between these two panels? Or did he completely shave between these two panels and yet his pose in the two panels is the exact same when he's looking in the mirror. If there is like 15 minutes between these two panels where he's looking in the mirror with a beard and he's not looking in the mirror with a beard, what? Like, (laughs) where's the razor? Also, like shaving a beard, you need two razors. You need like scissors or an electric razor and then like a straight razor, right? You do like the rough and then the fine. Like, this was really weird because... The speech from Mikhail is about Wade either lying to himself or fooling the rest of the world, which would include his son, right? The masks we wear, coloring your hair, growing a beard, adding 10 years to your face just to hide the shame. And I would thought when we see Wade in issue one, it's like, oh, he looks smaller and older and skinnier, and his, he has like a, mo- a lot more hair than he did in all the Marvel Hama issues. It's like it's, it's very distinct that he's much older now than his mm. son. But, Mark, I honestly don't know what is happening in these two panels. (laughs) This felt like a Zartan thing where it's like one moment I'm looking in the mirror and then the next moment I'm someone else because I have a hologram projector or something. So, like, what is happening here? Is is it a real beard? Did he shave? You're right. It is weird. And and I I hadn't thought about it too, too hard. What I thought was like one panel is him just before he shaves and another is the panel after. And then he's sort of surprised seeing his face. You know, under that beard that he's had a little while, but then, as you say, you know, this speech from Mikhail is sort of happening in real time. So, I guess, I guess you would explain it as as him him sort of like visualizing himself with the beard just before he had shaved it initially, and then sort of clearing the fog in his brain, and he's sort of seeing himself in the mirror for the first time without the I mean, the beard. It, I feel like sometimes people who make comics are paying too much attention to the movie of the scene mm-hmm. like in their head where they have the benefit of like sound effects like the trickling of water or uh, like music that can sort of build to a little crescendo and then cut out abruptly it's like for a moment he's in a haze he's in a daydream or like did did stefano caselli and sundar raj here need to draw a bunch of like mist on the mirror and it's like, okay, he has just shaved, but he's still kind of seeing himself with the beard. And then like the mist evaporates or he like wipes his hand across it. And like what he thought was the reflection of himself from 10 minutes ago is really the reflection of him now. Or like would the sound of Mikhail talking off panel be like sort of an underwater muffled sound, like swirly and dreamlike? And then when he when he goes from like funny aren't they the masks we wear like all of a sudden the like swirly background noise cuts out and mikhail's speech is like clear and back to normal and like two feet away and then wade like sort of comes out of it and he like realizes he's he's been staring at the mirror having 
shaved. It's like, no, 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 none of that is here. Mm. And it might, it might just be that this word balloon is crossing over from one panel to another on the gutter. It might just be an issue of there's not enough negative space to have that word balloon in one panel or the other. And that's a problem with too much story and too much art and too much dialogue and maybe a, a letterer who doesn't know where to put word balloons, but maybe a letterer mm-hmm. who has no no choice but to put a word balloon in over like someone's face or in a confusing place. I wonder whether maybe originally the idea had been that this was a little bit more literal. He, he's got his beard, then he's, then he's shaved and then he doesn't have a beard and he's surprised at the way he looks and then Mikhail starts talking, um, you know, after he sees his surprised face. Isn't funny, isn't it? The mask we wear. But there's so much dialogue there that it just didn't fit then in that next panel. And they had to start breaking it up and it, in, unintentionally causing that's confusion. Good. Or in this, in the first of the two panels where Wade's looking in the mirror, if you just had his hand coming into the panel and holding a razor... Just indicate that he is starting to shave and or rather than the like Herb Trimpy squinting Stefano Caselli furrowed brow eyes of this panel where he has the beard and he's looking in the mirror and he's very much paying attention to himself, but looking a little past it. What if you had him look dazed, like not a furrowed brow, but like straight brows with like zombie eyes, tired eyes? And he's shaving. It's like, oh, he's shaving and he doesn't realize it. And if it seems like I'm spending five or ten minutes on two panels on one page of one issue, uh, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> I, you know, it's like, man, comics are hard. And it's like, you know, you see a movie and, you know, it's like the script is great and the music is great and the art direction cinematography is great and the editing is great and all the actors are great and the fights are great except one actor's bad and like every time that actor shows up those scenes are kind of ruined you know it's like okay or what happens if you have like great actors great uh, locations like dumb story and also two of the actors are bad right it's like no 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 like there are enough excellent excellent comics out there and they're not like a ton but they're enough where like story's great Art's great, storytelling's great, color's great, lettering's great, design's great, that when I read a comic, which is like sort of hamstrung by some of these challenges, it's like, no, I'm going to read it because it's G.I. Joe and I love it, or I'm going to read it because it's it's my homework for this podcast. But I read this and it's like, ah. meanwhile, let's like, this is not a fair example. This is just some, like sort of the most recent, like wonderful comic I was talking about. This was yesterday. A friend of mine said, oh man, I really liked that Catwoman Lonely City miniseries, which DC just did. It's four issues. It's Black Label. Cliff Chang, who you know from uh, Wonder Woman and Paper Girls, writes, draws, colors, letters, and designs this four issue miniseries. And it's, uh, it's like 10 years in the future. Batman is no more. And Catwoman feels uh, guilty and is like, come back to Gotham. And there's enough of it that's really familiar. You've seen a lot of these elements before. Like, oh, it's Gotham in the future. Gordon's not commissioner anymore. Like, uh, like one more big score. Or like, Catwoman has regrets. It's like, okay, I've seen these elements before. But it is so, so satisfyingly and stylishly 
done in this arrangement that it feels totally fresh. And like every single panel is well drawn and well composed and like color is done with a light touch, but like very considered and like every couple of pages, the palette shifts a little bit. So, you know, like you're underground, you're above ground, it's nighttime, it's daytime. And, you know, and then I get to these like two panels of a G.I. Joe comic. It's like, I don't know what this guy is doing with his beard. Is it magic? It's funny, Tim. I had almost exactly the same, it's a very, very similar thought where, um, because I was reading um, Catwoman Lonely City this week as, as well. Oh. And I, was, I was thinking <laughs> to myself. Because the hardcover just came out yeah. uh, two weeks ago. And, and I was thinking to myself, like, you know, for Talking Joe, you know, we're quite often hard on, on comics, uh, on the, on the GI Joe comics. And, and my comparison is because, you know, uh, you know, we both read a lot, an awful lot of comics and there's so many comics out there and I sort of pay attention to what's out there and I try and just select what I know will be very good comics from very good creators that have, you know, that has already people have looked at and heaped praise on. So when I'm getting comics, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be getting a very good comic. So that is normally my comparator. And like, yeah, this week I, I've been reading Master and Apprentice, which has its has its flaws. And then Catwoman Lonely City, which, um, you know, has has been sort of people's number one comic on on a, on a few of the best of the years for, for 2022. So. So in some ways, it's a little bit, it's not completely a fair comparison because my mental comparator is, is often against, you know, the very best of comics. Um, there was something there was something that I also wanted to mention about that beard scene while we were on it, which was I think there's a bit of kind of no prizing or retconning going on in that, that scene where uh, Mikhail is talking about how wade has got that beard and he looks very old and i think a part of that it might be brandon sort of seeing uh the way that wade looked in issue one and thinking to himself that's not kind of a couple of years of aging because we're sort of part way between issue 155 and issue one that's not even five years and he looks like he's aged 20 years you know maybe i should talk to to that because something has happened to wade and it's not entirely clear what yeah, or I was thinking something similar. Larry Hama has mentioned that at times when he's adding dialogue, when he's writing and, and adding dialogue after he's gotten the art, because his artists work from his plot, that he has to add some dialogue to explain something that's not clear in the storytelling and the art that he did intend in the plot. And when I when I saw this word balloon, right, you're a perfect example, coloring your hair, growing your beard, adding 10 years to your face just to hide the shame. I thought, Something similar. Is Brandon Jerwa explaining the two previous panels? Pointing out the beard? So you you have a better take on this, a better no prize or explanation for a no prize. But I, I was on to something similar. Because yeah, he looks he looks proper old in issue one. So, yeah. so <laughs> and I'm um, sure people sort of in the letter pages probably probably queried or you know, or on the message boards queried it. And there might have been enough time in between the reaction to issue one this issue coming out having picked on the art and picked on the color i did want to point out something that i really like and it's actually on the opposing page of this mirror beard scene so page two of issue four um i think stefano caselli still has a lot of um comfort and clarity to work out after this job of 
moving the camera around in, in rooms and locations and not just showing where people are, but like really making me understand where they are and how they're moving. And he's not, he's not there yet. He's not like afraid to draw backgrounds and he's not afraid to draw perspective, right? He's doing that. He's not afraid to draw characters in perspective and he's not afraid to draw characters in angles, in foreshortening, in perspective, right? Like in, in poses. Like all this stuff is, is good and exciting and on its way. The, f- the first panel on this opposing page and the third panel are both really nice examples of showing someone past someone. And specifically on that first panel, right, where Firefly's running and Mikhail is behind him and Firefly says, Storm Shadow has escaped. This is really nicely done. And this is, you know, this is basic stuff, but it's, it's nicely done that we see Storm Shadow and the way that Storm Shadow is composed in this panel we can we can take it on faith that Firefly doesn't see him. Firefly's aiming away. He's not looking up. And if he is looking up, Storm Shadow is enough to the right that he's sort of blocked by the stairwell. And Storm Shadow's pose reads as tired, worried, relieved, right? Like, gotta get away. And then in the third panel, the one directly under it, it's the reverse angle, right? We see firefly again and he's listening to mikhail and uh he's got firefly's got his hand up his index finger and his thumb are are you know tense like he's he's thinking he's about to do something and again over his shoulder past him in the distance we see it's again storm shadow working his way up those stairs uh carefully and and sort of like he's injured so there's some nice visual storytelling here like showing people in relation to each other and that they can't see each other and that we can tell that. But also, since I was so hard on Shunjiraj uh, elsewhere in this podcast, even though there is too much dark to light to dark to light to dark to light on Firefly, right? Like his his three fingers are sort of become his coat and it all looks like tubes of dirt or like shiny worms it's like it's too much right and then on top of that you have this like very high contrast light and dark in the camo on his mask right it's like no 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 no. the his camo should not be that uh contrasty but raj does something really great here which is that red ball in the bottom corner it's it's the window where it's a light source past the window outside and it's hitting that low ceiling and it's hitting uh, Firefly's left side, what we see his on his right, on the side of his head and his cheek and his his neck and his coat, and that's really nice. And it even hits the bottom of the stairs that Storm Shadow's on. And so, I don't want to say something blanket like Sundaraj is a terrible colorist or Sundaraj doesn't know what he's doing. What I want to say is his sense of color and how how light behaves. He has a lot of skill. He's just overdoing it in almost every scene. There was something that, that I was sort of started thinking about as as I was talking about Wade Collins's aging, which is that this is essentially within a sort of five year period. And because, you know, they are um, comic book timing is is funny. They they sort of did try and say that essentially nineteen ninety five to two thousand and one was the the gap in between the 
the books that they were sort of aging in real time almost. But yeah, it felt like um, uh, in terms of Kamakura's career, an awful lot was fit into those short years because he would have, you know, he he got the the letter from Snake Eyes in 155, presumably while he was still a kid at home, but considering his future. So he would have had to have gone into some sort of general military training before then, you know, being recruited into to Hammer, uh, that's H-A-M-M-E-R uh, team. And then that disaster happening, then uh, the whole apprentice thing happening then this you know big conclusion then stuff happening in between then and the um uh, and issue one where he's he's sort of working with snake eyes as kamakura and doing side jobs for duke he's accomplished a lot in those few years yeah i i think i'm fine with that and certainly a different version of this character uh sean collins in the monthly larry hama a real American hero book has accomplished a lot. He sort of artificially aged up, whereas the other Joes sort of didn't, because now mm. he's one of them. So, eh, you know, it's it's a it's a cheat or an exaggeration, but I'm okay with it. What threw me off though, where you're talking about um, time passing, is just a couple pages into issue one of this miniseries, uh, there's this montage of training with this redhead and Scarlet looking grumpy about it. And then a narration box that says one year later. And I thought, whoa, that's a eight pages into this comic, into this miniseries, and it just jumps a year. And th- this is before the reveal that Snake Eyes feels something for his apprentice because she reminds him of his sister. And I don't buy that. I'm sorry. I, I just don't think it's good. Either either as a red herring that it's like, oh, he's like losing his love for Scarlet because there's this other redhead and she's younger or like she's more of a ninja or just because it actually reminds him of his sister. Like, eh, no. Yeah, it's meant to be introduced as a bit of a red herring, I guess, that you meant to, uh, I guess you meant to come to the conclusion that possibly there's some feelings from Snake Eyes towards that other redhead. I don't know. Yeah, and... I'm putting on my Jay Cordray hat here. No, I don't buy any of this scene in the first pages where Snake Eyes is training these new people and ignoring his girlfriend wife. He would be training with her. That's it's like, sorry, Blaylock and Jurwa. It you just got it wrong. And you know, you know, Jurwa has to make it work. So I appreciate the attempt to incorporate a thing, an important thing from the Larry Hama story, you know, connection to his sister, the photo, the very specific photo of his sister that he carried in in Vietnam. Um, I appreciate the attempt. It still uh, doesn't work. I did want to ask you, Mark, about page eight of the first issue. So Sean's talking with his dad, Wade, and in the third panel, Wade, the elder, looking at a photo from Vietnam, says, have you been in touch with Snake Eyes? And Sean, the younger, says, not since we exchanged letters. And I thought for a second, okay, this is referring to issue 155, which Mm -hmm. is an amazing comic book. And remind me, in issue 155, Snake Eyes gets a letter from Sean 
And most of the issue is Snake Eyes writing a response. Mm -hmm. And then on the final page, Sean's talking to his mom. And is it that he sent a response to Snake Eyes response and that's what got returned? So so the as it as it goes, uh, Snake Eyes receives a letter from Sean, which is written in a typeface, which I find quite difficult to read on the fly. <laughs> um, at that point, he is in school. Um, he's looking at uh, recruitment posters and asking Snake Eyes for advice, I guess. Snake Eyes replies. Sean gets the reply. Wade much younger Wade than uh, appears here, says, <laughs> if you're still intent on joining up, even after reading that letter, I'll sign the pages. I have to think about this some more, Dad. So he's not he's not convinced that he's going to sign up at that point. And uh, the conclusion is that there isn't a return address. That's because it is shuttered. Okay. So... Uh... Maybe I'm just parsing the definition of the word exchanged. I guess if you if you send me a letter and I send you a letter, we've exchanged letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I'm I'm nitpicking. I thought when I read this scene in Master and Apprentice that it was uh, slightly mischaracterizing, um, you know, that an exchange would be more than one letter each way. But okay, okay. And also, and also, um. At some point, it says in this book, which I found a bit weird, was um, it said that Sean was Snake Eyes's godson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is new. When did that happen? <laughs> if they, if they only, if uh, they only, I think, it, I think it happened. I think it happened a moment ago when you just said that out loud. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's a good example of an interesting idea that also gets put into this you know i mean it it makes it makes sense you know his dad and the other guy were in vietnam together and uh they exchanged some letters in 155 yeah and i guess i guess him becoming his godfather maybe it's not kind of a literal i was there at your christening thing it could be you know more more of sort of a you know uncle it is a thing you ask someone will you be my son's godfather it's like if if I die, will you raise him or help out? Mm. And I don't need a whole scene, but yes, I do think for, for that reference here to be a surprise to us, it should have been brought up once before, either in this miniseries, in Devil's Do, or referring to something back in Marvel. Mm. And since it doesn't, it does jump out as a as a surprise. And, and not a like, oh, how novel, Jirwa's doing something clever. It's sort of like, what you said, like, wait, when did that happen? Yeah, and how does that fit in with the the rest of the things, like like them being in that helicopter to, together and not not speaking to one another, sort of barely acknowledging each one, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, anyway, but you know, he he, there, there is enough of a relationship there that that Sean turns up on his doorstep and is taken in as the apprentice and all the rest of it. So, oh, you, you know, what I just realized this this page I'm talking about in issue one where. Sean's hanging up a coat and then mm-hmm. Wade is looking at the photo and he refers to the letters. I didn't know what was happening in the fourth panel. Why is Sean like coming down the stairs and there's this giant like painting leaning against the banister? And now I realize that thing on the bottom, uh, it's it's below the he's a good man word balloon. That's the photo. 
the frame photo is in the foreground. So in this panel, we are looking from Wade's point of view mm-hmm. yeah. back yeah. at Sean, but uh, it, really, it really wants like a thicker line outlining the frame to separate it from the guy behind it. And also we need to see that hand and that thumb again. Yeah. When you pointed out, I was a bit like, what, 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 what is what? <laughs> but never mind. Uh, what else did I want to mention? I, I sort of said, could we have the same story almost without Wade being in it or, or without that twist that Wade joins Mikhail and is then killed because of space that has to sort of all, all happen very quickly without a huge amount to, to breathe. And, and in issue four, Wade dies and then Kamakura has his becoming the master or, you know, graduating element and his somewhat celebratory last page of him in his new uniform smirking sort of made me think, oh, and your your dad just died a few pages earlier. I thought possibly that death of Wade wasn't needed or if it was there needed a little bit more, more space. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about the death of Wade again. It feels like deja vu. <laughs> right, because in our in our regular episodes, not about disavowed, where we talk about the IDW GI Joe, I was predicting that he caught a bad one. <laughs> caught a bad one. I was predicting that Wade Collins would definitely die on Cobra Island uh, outside the casino, and he didn't. Okay, so yes, uh, Sean looks pretty happy and cool um, for having just lost his dad. It is three weeks later, but um, here's a rewrite for this final two-page scene uh, at the end of this miniseries, right? Three weeks later in the High Sierras. I guess this is it then. Uh, and then Jinx says, Sean Collins, uh, you stand before your peers and your fellow Rashikage ninja as a warrior among men. Your training is complete. The final trial has come and gone. And they walk outside and there's a little like tombstone for Wade Collins outside this cabin, which... Stefano Caselli does not draw like we don't see an exterior and like I don't need an establishing shot with like a little cabin on a on a mountain with trees around it and snow and smoke coming out of the chimney but it's like okay we've got this guy who was in the U.S. military but then he became Cobra and then he pointed a gun at some Joes at the wall in D.C. (laughs) and then he kind of became a Joe and then his son became a Joe sort of but a ninja it's like no this guy would definitely get buried off the books so why not have them bury him in this scene or just before this scene? And rather than spending a full page with a really cool pinup that's going to like sell for more money at a convention for the artist where. And can be used as the reaping cover. <laughs> yeah, where where um, instead of a full page of art on the final page of the comic, why not break it into four or five or six panels and have them go outside and he like says something nice about his dad or he looks at the like pile of dirt where they just buried his dad and he like shows the tattoo. Yep. Oh, and we saw f- this, the wrap up of issue of, of this issue four um, sort of is the, is the segue into GI Joe issue one, where we sort of see Kamakura for the first time on a mission for Duke, um, you know, from the base of Snake Eyes's cabin where where he's been snooping on the the dreadnoughts so so it is you know it is a decent segue to kind of set up how how it is that kamakura and sort of snake eyes are on the side working on these little missions for for duke in, in before the uh the 
Joe team has been reactivated. I I have a I have a response to that. So a few minutes ago, we were both making a an arbitrary and therefore unfair comparison of this to a recent prestige DC Catwoman miniseries, and it would be more fair to compare this to other Brandon Jurawa stories or other GI Joe stories. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the mission that never was. This reminds me of a GI Joe story that doesn't feel like a GI Joe story where the pacing and the sort of movement of characters from point A to point B to point C feels, uh, the word forced is too strong, but every time I've read that story, like the three times I've read that story, when it first came out a couple years ago, and then for this podcast, I remember thinking, man, this is like the one Larry Hama G.I. Joe story, which it's like it doesn't work. It doesn't flow. And I know that's because, and he has said so, that's because Devil's Due made him write to, a, to an outline. He had to say what was going to happen in all the issues before he did it. And Hama is much better at open-ended stories. But, you know, a publisher and the comic book store business culture doesn't want a publisher to say, uh, here's a Larry Hama G.I. Joe miniseries. It's going to be three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine issues. <laughs> and what I see here is uh, Mission That Never Was isn't like full of 37 characters. It's not like too packed in that way. But I do see Hama sort of inelegantly moving from place to place because he has to hit he he, had to, he has to hit these marks and i see this sort of list of things that jirwa either has decided for himself that he wants to hit mm-hmm. to make this connect from 155 to devil's do 1 or that blaylock is saying touch on this touch on this touch on this and then on top of it jirwa puts in too many characters and a lot of dialogue and then you have this artist who's good but not great yet at storytelling and so the whole thing feels uneven you know it's like i read a scene and i think okay i can't quite follow this but the action's exciting and then someone talks for a page it's like oh um so both are four issue stories both are artists who i was excited to be working on gi joe dan jurgens on the frontline arc both are artists who ultimately don't pull off the work i want them to dan jurgens because i don't think his heart was in it or maybe the deadline was terrible and Caselli here because he's he's not up to the challenge yet. And both are G.I. Joe stories that I would consider reading again and have like sort of a, a soft spot for. It's like, what's well, that G.I. Joe story that Hama did that like it was the sequel to 155. It got us to Devil's Do. It's like, that should be cool. It's like, oh, well, this is the this is the Devil's Do story that gets us to Devil's Do. It's like, nope, nope, I don't like either. Uh, changing, changing tech incredibly. Um, I, I wonder if you picked up on uh, on this plot point, Tim. Uh, Mikhail Dorenko. What what's his connection to the wider GI Joe story that oh, Brandon man. Joe was telling? Um, is he does he become a Red Shadow? He becomes Overlord. Oh, that's cool. So uh, Kamakura slinging his throwing stars Dorenko and one catching him in the eye um, explains Overlord's, I don't know if it's missing eye or just a, a, a scar on his eye. That's neat. Uh, it's not entirely clear 
on the page that I've already talked about where Kamakura throws three throwing stars and they hit Mikhail. It's not entirely clear that one of them hits him in the eye. The silhouette only shows that one hits him somewhere on the head. Uh, but yes, you know, that Jirwa is even making that connection. Uh, that's that's really fun. It is both a representation of the care that Jirwa is putting into the connective tissue of his stories, and also the risk you run by putting so much connective tissue into your stories. And the bit sort of, you know, knowing that Mikhail Dorenko is um, Overlord and knowing that he then joins Serpentor slash the Coil and sort of working with the jugglers, I wonder if that that is meant to be the kind of the underlying hint of as to the wider organization that he's working for that that it's the that the nowhere man structure is that he he is working for the coil and the coil uh, they talked about him recruiting ex cobras and the coil consists largely of disin- disenfranchised ex cobras so so i suspect that's probably what that is meant to be that's that's a cool attempt, and for the for the Devils Do fans who were really invested in the Devils Do story at the time, that's uh, that's thrilling. Do we know who the Nowhere Man is? Do we see him in this story? Is he on that helicopter on the rooftop fight, or is he just mentioned? I think Nowhere Man is meant to be a code name for Mikhail Derenko. That's the reveal. That okay. He, okay. He is the Nowhere Man. Okay. But yeah, Derenko is set up almost as like the nemesis for for Kamakura and that story doesn't get uh, resolved in the main book because he's sort of um, blown up um, in the Arctic somewhere. Remember where he attacks the, uh, the their base? I remember now that you have said so. so that is uh, that's where we see the end of Dorenko, I think. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe there was a plan that, that he might sort of serve some larger purpose here that, that uh, wasn't able to be fulfilled in the, the wrap up of the uh, of the story, but there we go. He, that 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 Dorenko versus Kamakura reunion fight never never came to pass. A small thing that would have helped me in this miniseries would be if um, Mikhail Dorenko had either one costume through all four issues, or if he had something like an eye patch or. Uh, like a goatee or an earring or like if only he had that if only he had that scar earlier on in his career if only in the in the hammer team briefing at the pentagon in issue one he had a throwing star sticking out of his head <laughs> because it, you know in the beginning in issue one he's he's in mm, military yeah in issue in issue one he's wearing fatigues in issue three, he's wearing a jacket and tie. In issue four, he's got this armor. And I see an attempt to make him different from the other people. He's got black hair, it's slicked back. In issue three and four, it's always got sort of two strands sort of coming off it. Yeah. Though in his yeah, in his earlier appearances, he's got more of a military sort of spiky look to him. Yeah. So it's and so not again, it's, like, it's not it's not helping us, it's because it's not consistent. I mean, you can change your hairstyle over time. Particularly if you're building a new identity of yourself, but it doesn't help her. <laughs> it doesn't help us poor readers to be able to track yeah, someone yeah. issue to issue. There are good reasons in in real world logic to have people change clothes and change hairstyles. 
and makeup. And there are, you know, it's like, no, I always know I'm looking at Charlie Brown. (laughs) Front, back, day or night. And in this story, 75% of the time when I'm looking at Firefly, I know it's Firefly because he's wearing that mask. And the 25% of the time that I don't, it's because we see him from the back and it's that thing where everyone else is wearing dark gray in the scene and I can't tell who anyone is. And that there is a moment where he's having that meeting, I think, Firefly and Dorenko and Firefly doesn't have the mask and you're a bit like... Oh, right, right. And, and I thought... That, is that... Is that oh. Right. And I thought, I thought, wait, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel because I think the only time we've ever seen Firefly without his mask is in was 126 or 129 yeah, and he's or got so a blurry face one. isn't he yeah he and he's he's like using some hypnosis so they sort of can't see who he is it's like no 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 you you guys are getting you guys are misreading this we're not supposed to see firefly yeah. like always have him in his mask put him in a jacket and tie with his mask or i guess put him in a, like a jacket and tie but like have his face shadowed and like have him holding that phone from his action figure and wearing like his gloves and have him have someone call him Firefly, make it really obvious it's Firefly. Like one of the, which sort of reminds me of, maybe this is my final um, comments on this miniseries. And and this, this goes back to Devil's Due, you know, even the first arc. I think Snake Eyes loses some of his power when his face is healed and mm-hmm. or when and or when he is not wearing his mask and it's in it's in issue four of of this miniseries of master and apprentice no it's in issue three so okay so there's a scene halfway through the issue where it's after the mission on the rooftop went bad and uh it's a scene where snake eyes wakes up in bed he's got a bandage on his arm he walks into a living room and he sees Chuckles, any guy with black hair and a red shirt, Jinx and uh, Sean sitting on furniture and Duke is uh, standing there and Duke says, hello, Snake Eyes. Okay. And in that first panel when Snake Eyes wakes up, he's making a face. He's making a face like you make when you wake up and you sigh and you're like, your head hurts. And then in the second panel, he's a little inscrutable because his face is a little bit in shadow. And then in the third panel, he's far away. So I don't quite know what what he's supposed to be feeling. And then in the next panel where they shake hands, Duke says, Chuckles and I owe you an apology, I think. And Caselli crops Snake Eyes' head out of the shot, which is ordinarily what I would want, but is really weird here because he's just shown Snake Eyes' head three panels in a row. So no, you're allowed to see this version of Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes, there, there's so many layers to this, right? Like he wears a mask because he's injured. He's, he wears a mask because maybe he's ashamed. He wears a mask because it makes people uncomfortable if they see his face. In G.I. Joe stories, he takes his mask off to freak people out. When he takes his mask off in front of Scarlet and a doctor in issue 93, it's a big deal. It's like a very, very small or a big gut punch for the reader, depending on your expectations. And... Like, what happens in 95? The minute he gets plastic surgery, he takes hot ash to the face. And, you know, we talked about you and I and um, and Jay Cordray, um, previous host of Talking Joe, when, is it at the end of Reinstated? Is it is it Devil's Due Issue 4? 
Is that when Snake Eyes proposes to Scarlet? Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, I think so. And he's got this like very short haircut and he just sort of looks like, he sort of looks like Duke, but not with like Duke's modern, like very, very thick buzz cut. Like his like Lieutenant Guile, like his miniature Lieutenant Guile. Um, Snake Eyes just sort of looks like anyone mm-hmm. when he's not wearing his mask. He looks like Chuckles. He looks like Downtown. He looks like Psych Out. And when you put his mask on, you don't know what he's thinking. And that adds a lot of drama to any panel of Snake Eyes doing anything. Standing there, shaking hands, gearing up, like jumping off a, 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 off a roof. And so you project. And, and it, it's not that he can't communicate, because he can write notes. You know, like, doesn't he write a note? He, he writes observations in, is it issue four? Yeah, when he's... Uh, uh, Marvel issue four, Operation Wingfield. Mm-hmm. And, and otherwise, he doesn't talk except for he doesn't write except for 155 right and like 155 has a lot of power because like every five issues snake eyes hadn't been writing notes and like doing sign language um or like texting and so every time you have him on panel and he's not wearing his mask it's like it's not that i need him to be scarred if i see him without his mask because that like keeps the character damaged it's that it makes him less interesting and less special and so that he keeps showing up in all these scenes in these miniseries and here and there in the main devil's do series without his mask and he's like sometimes he's smiling a little bit or he's not it it just feels like the wrong note to me yep it's like okay this is a snake eyes this isn't my snake eyes and it's sort of not snake eyes and it's like, you know, the scene in issue one that I was talking about where he's that montage where he's training the, the kid who looks like his sister and Scarlet's on the phone and she's she's worried or grumpy about it. It's like, no, if we can see his expression, then we like start to. It's like, no, those expressions carry too much weight. It's like, is he is he smiling? Is he just it's like, no, 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 just put the, just put the mask on. Like if, if he and his apprentice are like meditating in the garden and she's on the phone, Scarlet, she can see them and Snake Eyes is holding a sword upright and he's like frowning or smiling. It's like, that's too much. It's giving me too much information. I want to, I want to always be sort of uncertain and guessing with Snake Eyes. And that's, it's a, that's a decision that Devils Do made early on that I think takes the character in a, in a direction that I will never be on board with. Mm. Like he's much more interesting on the covers of Master's Apprentice than he is in the book. And and by interesting I mean, you know, like cool and mysterious and uh what's the word that I use? Inscrutable. Inscrutable. Yeah, like no, Snake Eyes is inscrutable, right? He it it's not that he can't talk, it's that he doesn't. So in addition to him not writing notes and telling people how he feels and telling the audience how he feels, we also, by that logic, by that rule, we shouldn't see from his face how he feels. Or there's just a little bit of body language, like in some Marvel issue where he's in costume and Scarlet's in costume and he like turns away from her. Or like he's wearing his mask, his, his like Caucasian mask with the sunglasses, and they're on the ferry together, right? And it's like, no, it's context clues. It's that he's standing next to her and her arm is around him and they're on the freaking ferry together. It's not that he's like... <laughs> 
like leaning his head on her shoulder. Nope, too much. It's not that he's like got these like gorgeous eyes and eyebrows and pouty lips and a Stefano Caselli master and apprentice panel. And he's like smiling at her like, nope, too much. It's like Snake Eyes is action, not not words and not face. I had a I had a, a sort of an observation on the look of Kamakura as I was reading this, which is probably completely meaningless, but I thought I'd share it out there with the world. Kamakura has got a sort of fairly bright green bodysuit with a black mask. Who else has got that as their outfit from G.I. Joe? It's Firefly version two. Is that a is that a coincidence? Or do you think that's Josh Blaylock in designing Kamakura trying to create a relationship? I think that is a coincidence, to be honest. Maybe some subliminal coincidence, but uh, I don't think it, there's nothing to read into it yeah. any more than than that. But imag- imagine as a sequel, Kamakura in his black and black and green versus Firefly in his black and green. I uh, like all these guys in dark gray in issue three. But you know uh, what they say: they're... black and green should never be seen. Never mind. Uh, I, I think there are some really interesting color relationships in G.I. Joe in 1982. Good guys are in green, bad guys are in blue. Or Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow, they're opposites. You know, or Snake Eyes and Scarlet, you can see who she is and she has color. Snake Eyes, you can't. He's all covered and he's in black. And sometimes it's like you can put a stretcher uh, next to the Alley Viper. It's like, this guy's got a hat. <laughs> And, and a, a, a flight pod thing, stretcher thing. And that guy's got a shield and blue camo. It's like, those are just, those are just some colors. So yes, Kamakura does look like a Firefly version too. And I agree. It's just a coincidence. I think we're, I think we're pretty much done with our discussion. Was there any, anything else that you wanted to point out? Did you have any errors, favorite line of dialogues? Uh, no, I think that I think that bit I just did about Snake Eyes and being inscrutable and seeing him and not seeing him and how he communicates is so good. I feel like <laughs> it's, just, it's like, oh, shoot, that's at the end of a long episode. Are people going to get to that? It's like, oh, do people pay more attention to the Hama IDW episodes of Talking Joe than Disavowed? Like, oh, Mark should cut that and paste that into the middle of uh, uh, an IDW episode or like release it as its own like. It's like, Mark, you should go record 10 minutes on how you think about Snake Eyes and release that as a mini episode and say to people like, okay, if you don't listen to Devil's Do episodes or you don't get to the end, this is good stuff. <laughs> Tim, Tim got onto something here. Very good. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done talking about this mini series for this episode. Okay. So uh, do you want to score it? Should we do a yo-jo each? <sighs> uh, four. Okay. Uh, maybe a, maybe a three. <gasps> Like, like a three is so damning because a three is almost not a functioning comic and there's four, but man, issue, issue three, I, I in my notes, I, I, can't, I just kept, I wrote several times for issue three and for issue four, what is happening in this panel? Or I can't follow page 12 or I can't follow page 13 or what, what is happening on page 15 panel six? That's issue four. <laughs> That's issue four. I, I think I think my score probably would have been a five, but then on my reread, I felt like that added a lot to it, and it sort of it it made me more comfortable with the book. Um, so I'll probably go six, six and a half, something like like wow. that. Wow. So so I you know it's not scoring up there in the sevens, eights, nines, you know, but 
yeah, I, I appreciate that there was some some effort made to, to into this book, even even if it wasn't entirely successful across the the board. And and it's yeah, interesting seeing a young artist like Stefano Caselli, who's sort of just sort of on the on the cusp, doing doing some sterling work, but but you know, not at all, all times quite quite achieving it. So and 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 as always, anything above a five not a regretful read and something that uh, I would be happy to reread at some point in the future. Um, so there we go. And, and I, and I do, I do take that into account when I give this a four Re- reading this again would make me sad. <laughs> um, now that said, I really enjoyed our interview with Brandon Jerwa and I would love to chat with him again. And I would love to have lunch with him or bump into him at a convention. So this isn't like, you know, Brandon Drew was a bad guy. It's not that. Okay, so so we are done with Master and Apprentice. Next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will continue our look at the tail end of the Brandon Joa era. Uh, and I think we'll do that with Master and Apprentice Volume 2, if you can bear it, Tim. Let's do G.I. Joe Transformers 2 <laughs> first. No, that's because... That's saying that you can't bear it. Uh, no, it's because that's chronological. Mm. Because that is advertised in Master and Apprentice Volume 1, Issue 3. Okay. You want to do Transformers, uh, G.I. Joe versus Transformers Volume 2, written by Dan Jolly, as our next thing. Yes. Yes, I do. Let's do that. Yes, I do. So uh, your homework, ladies and gentlemen, before the next podcast uh, is is to to dig out Volume 2. And uh, and we'll be discussing it next time. And that's six issues, and we're going to do all six in one episode. Yes. Okay. And yeah, and in between discussing the Devil's Due era, we'll be doing uh, other things as well. Find out what those are at the same time that we do. I think. <laughs> but we'll be talking to some uh, interesting people over the next few months. I am sure. While we wait uh, for for issue three hundred one. So where can people find you, Tim, when we're not talking on this podcast? Video essays about television and film at AtomicAbe.com or our YouTube page, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick and mortar comic book store, Hub Comics, is in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I write about G.I. Joe at arealamericanbook.com. Very good. You can find out more about the show at the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to all those places. If you're not on the Facebook group, subscribe to us on Twitter and Instagram and definitely subscribing to us on YouTube, then please get on and do that. You can also support the show via Patreon, patreon.com slash talkingjoe with as much or as little as you want to contribute to us. And a big thanks to all of our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob and Brian, who are all getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. And that is us done. But remember that... Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! Laters.